0: Jesus, he loves me, he is for me. I think there's a reason that we set that to music and we say it over and over again. And I think part of the reason is that there's something about the human heart that feels like maybe it's just too good to be true. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of what is true about God and what God has indeed done. Identity, value, purpose, every human being who's ever lived hungers for this. You hunger for this. I hunger for this. We need this. And that is exactly what the Apostle John, in his first epistle, is probing and explaining and driving home to us over and over again, and he brings one truth strand and another truth strand, and then he, he'll add in another strand of truth, and he keeps weaving it together till we see that the whole fabric of Christian truth and Christian experience, Christian reality, is tied together in a way that must not be broken and that is necessary to our very purpose and existence and well-being. John has been dealing with what Christianity really is and by default what it's not. He has been dealing with who Christians really are and he has been teaching us how we can know for sure. This morning, we're in verses 13 through 21. Again, remember, this is a letter. With a letter, you don't read five lines, set it down. And then the following week, you read the next five lines. The whole letter goes together. And so there's a little bit, it's a little bit artificial as we have to break for sake of time, to have to keep coming back, and now we're going to read the next portion of the letter. But there's such a tight development that John won't let us really forget what he's been teaching us. So, in verse 13 of 1 John 4, these words from God through the Apostle John. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So at this point, and John has already been talking about the Spirit to some degree, but he makes it really explicit here That when God gives us the Spirit, there are gifts that come with that. There there is impact from that gift of the Spirit of God in our lives. In verse 13, we are given assurance. We are given assurance. Verses 14 and 15, by the Spirit of God, we are given faith that this gospel message that God sent His Son into the world is actually true. Verse 16, and then following up in verses 19 to 21, through the Spirit we are given love that really transforms the way we live. And then verses 17 and 18, because of this work of the Spirit, we gain confidence regarding the day of judgment. So let's look first at this assurance, verse 13, by this we know that we abide in Him and he and us, because he has given us of his spirit. Those words, by this we know, keep recurring throughout this letter. It's the reason we're calling the whole series that you may know, because this is the recurring theme. And it, it teaches us right from the start that John is no agnostic. An agnostic says you just can't know. Well, you can know. By this, we know John's not teaching agnosticism. That seems a little more humble to us sometimes, but, but it's not humble when you're faced with real evidence. John's not an agnostic, nor does he take the opposite extreme of elevating theoretical or philosophical knowledge as did the Gnostics, where if you've compiled a lot of knowledge and you've entered into this mystical knowledge, you're somehow superior to everyone else. He does not subscribe to that falsehood either. This knowledge is not just knowing a list of facts, but knowing in the sense of experiencing. Assurance that we are in God and that God is in us because His love is at work in us, in our loving one another, because He has given us His Spirit. He's really giving insight into why all of this works. A lifestyle of love has a divine reason that it even exists. The the power to live in love comes from a person, the person of the Holy Spirit of God whom God has given to us. I had discussions in the past, we've talked about this quality of love, and the question almost inevitably comes up as we feel the pressure of the obligation to love as well. You know, how do you just command love? I mean, think about our other relationships. You don't, you don't say, you know, a boy and a girl, they say, I want you to love her. I want her to, and now do it. It's not like taking out the trash. Like, this is something that comes from inside of you. So, how does God actually command this of us, and how do we actually follow through with it? How can it be real and not just some kind of fake going through the motions? And the answer really is that the Spirit of God abides in us. God abides in us through the Spirit of God, changing and empowering us. He actually makes us want to love to love God and to love others. And he he enables us to do this, to, to be what we are so that we can do what we do and live how we live. Remember last week we talked about you do what you are. I mean, we can do things that aren't what we are. What do we call that? We call that hypocrisy, like you're putting on a show. But when I do things that are consistent with who I actually am, then it's real. It, it has roots to it. it. It comes across as authentic. And for, for that to be true, there has to be a change at, at the level of who I am, my very identity. And John frequently then will use language of abiding, God abiding in us, our abiding in Him, to describe the, the effective Christian life, a Christian life that's more than just I go to such and such a church, but, but I actually am living out this, this relationship with God and how I interact with others. And, and John, you know, I'm struck how often the way John talks has so much echo of Jesus in it. You, you can tell that John spent time with Jesus just by the way he talks And and he got this idea of abiding actually from Jesus himself. John 15, 4, and 5, some of the most familiar verses to us, where Jesus says to us, Abide in me, remain in me, stay in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You need this life-giving force in you. You can't be disconnected from it any more than a plant you can chop off a plant, and it continues to thrive. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever, no exceptions, abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. We need to remind ourselves, apart from him we can do nothing. So this is not about piling up all your to-do list and making sure you check every box. This is about abiding in Christ, so that it just grows organically from who you are. It's not that there's no effort and there's no planning, but it is that this is coming from you as far as who you are. You you hear Christ's words echoing in what John has already taught us in this epistle. In 1 John 2, 6, he says, whoever, this is the first time he used the terminology abides, he says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. And that just makes perfect sense. If I'm abiding in God, if I've got that close of a relationship, then the way that I'm living my daily life ought to look like the way God, when He was in human flesh, lived His. I mean, because when two people walk together, there, there's an impact on one another. 1 John 2.24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. So he, he ties our receiving of the gospel truth and, and counting it as true, holding it, he connects that to our abiding in the Son and in the Father. There's a, there's a connection between the gospel message and actually abiding in God. You can't divorce the two. John's words regarding the Holy Spirit also echo what Jesus taught. In John 14, 15 to 17, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Christ has already talked about how the Spirit's going to be changing who we are so that we're keeping the commandments of God summed up in loving God and loving others. 1 John 3, 24. John writes, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us. I mean, that's almost a paraphrase of what Jesus told the disciples in the upper room back in John 14. And then Paul writes about it. So, this is not unique. To John, this this is what all the apostles are teaching Romans 8, 9, and 10. You, however, are not in the flesh. If you're in the flesh, you can't please God. But in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if I belong to Jesus, I have the spirit. If I don't have the spirit, I don't belong to Jesus. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Well, what does that spiritual life look like? And he he starts talking about this battle. You know, a person that just goes along with sinning and doesn't battle it proves that he doesn't have the life of the Spirit, because God doesn't sit idly by in the presence of of sin. He deals with it. And and so we fight this battle um, and And he he talks about that in terms of being led by the Spirit. He says in verse 14 of Romans 8, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So it's not just saying, Okay, the Lord led me to, to move to Greenville, South Carolina. Well, that may be true. Or the Lord led me to go into this career. In context, what he's talking about is the Lord led me to do holy war against the sin that wants to take hold of my life. That, that's what the Spirit of God does. He, the, he's the Holy Spirit, so He works holiness in us as we fight that battle in His power. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And, and adoption takes in more than just you join the family. It's like you have the family inheritance and you're going to have that by whom we cry abba father in other words it brings us so close to god that we would actually use language similar to our like a kid saying where's daddy or when when daddy gets home you know when they're when the kids are little how they run run to daddy i think sometimes it makes the mommies feel bad the way they you know but but it's a, a A beautiful thing to see kids, like, they want to be uh, with their their parents. And this Abba Father, we have that sense of closeness. He's the king of the universe. He's the God of heaven and earth. And yet, we're his children. And, And we know he cares for us. The Spirit himself bears witness, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, we don't always feel that way. You can be a child of God and feel out of sorts with God. But, but it is a beautiful thing when we actually sense that presence of God. We see him leading us. We, we see him empowering us to fight the battles. So, so Christianity, really foundationally, is not about what you do for God, but about what God does in you. It's it's not that you're lazy. It's not that there's this, like, fiction going on where it's, oh, yes, I belong to God. I believe in God, and you live like the devil. It's it's recognizing that that you're a believer, not just because you tried harder than everybody else, but that God was at work in you and that He does this personally. I mean, personally, literally personally through the person of the Holy Spirit. And That's why it works. That's why you can even have tests of whether a person's a Christian or not, or whether this is Christianity or not. Does it actually work, or is it a bunch of talk? And the reason it works is because of the Spirit. And this is why false religion doesn't work. Now, there are other ways you can get output. But, you know, pile up your ceremonies and pile up your rules, and you will not you will not produce a Christian. Now, a Christian wants to do what's right before God, and a Christian will engage in ceremonies, but you make a Christian through the Spirit being given to that person, the Spirit of the living God. And so, as we start off this morning, we really want to be honest with ourselves as to whether in our own lives we see evidence of the Spirit's work in us? Are we just floating around? Are we just going through the motions? Are, are we unwilling to fight the battles against sin? Do we, or, or is the Spirit at work in your heart and in your life? Now, I, just asking the question at this stage of the message could make a lot of us really uncomfortable because we really haven't finished what he's talking about here because he's going to talk about more of the evidence, more of what the Spirit does in our life. And hopefully by the end of the message, you'll have clarity on whether or not you belong to Jesus, and that if you do, here's what's growing in your life. So, secondly, in verses 14 to 15, we find connected to the Spirit of God this gift of faith. So, we have assurance, we have faith, Verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, when He uses language like that, we're reminded that, that the good news of the gospel is not just some kind of mystical um, stuff that these guys made up. We have seen, it's the same word that John uses in John 1.14 when he says, we beheld His glory. We closely observed the glory of the Word made flesh, who tabernacled among us, who pinched his tent alongside of us. We we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. It's a striking thing to be able to live with a person for three and a half years... 24 hours a day, pretty much, watch everything he did publicly and privately and come away with the conclusion, this human being is God. And these aren't crazy guys. These are salt of the earth, fishermen, regular guys. They, they're, not, they're not engaged in some kind of fantasy. That is That is striking. Now, a lot of people can come off pretty amazing at a distance, but you dig into their lives, you spend some time with them, and you find out who they really are. And John says, we have seen, we've closely observed, and this is God the Son. And he, he uses the same word again in 1 John 1.1 when he says, um, you know, what we have seen and heard, what we have looked upon, same word, we are testifying to you. So, so their testimony which refers to first-hand testimony, like in a court of law, it is rooted in firsthand experience. You can't really be a witness if you weren't there. Realize how many things were told by people who weren't there? Okay. We want to test whether something's true or not. Is there actual eyewitness testimony? Well, here's an eyewitness uh, Here's an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. He's actually seen, and therefore he testifies. Um, And this is the word we get martyr from. And and it reminds us that these apostles were so convinced of the truth of what they testified regarding Jesus that they were willing to die for it rather than deny it. That's how convinced. It's the same word that John uses here in 1 John uh, 1, 2. He says, we bear witness. So, John is reiterating what he said as he started off this letter. He and the other apostles were declaring what they had personally seen and and heard and touched when they declared Jesus Christ to be the Son of God who gives eternal life to those who believe. And you remember that he declared that their purpose in writing was so that his readers could share in the same experience. We call it having fellowship. That means to have in common, like you're sharing a meal together to have fellowship with the apostles, to share what the apostles experience, And, and this is even more amazing, to have fellowship, to have a share, be a partaker with God the Father and God the Son. That's extraordinary. So we enter into, you know, we think back to what would have been like to actually walk with Jesus. And, and John says, this is what it's like. And, and you can have the experience, too, if, if you will believe our testimony. Now John gives insight into how those of us who have not personally seen Jesus in the flesh, as did the apostles, could actually come to the conviction that what they testified about Jesus is actually reliable and true. You know, the longer I live in a world that makes up so much news, you wonder how much history you actually know. I mean, that actually happened. It was what was recorded as to what happened, but did it actually happen? And in most cases, like, did Washington chop down the cherry tree? I don't really care. (laughs) I mean, what difference does it make? But this matters. If this is true, this changes everything this is not true it changes everything so first john 4:15 he says whoever confesses that jesus is the son of god god abides in him and he in god The Spirit of God brings this conviction. The Spirit of God produces this conviction. According to 1 John 4, 2 and 3, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, has come in the flesh, so that means He had preexistence, is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It's the Spirit of God that produces this conviction. What John is teaching matches what Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit. In John 15, 26... But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John 16, 14 and 15. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So God's gift of the Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts and minds. He convinces us in our heart of hearts that the good news of Jesus Christ is rooted in who He is and what He's done, that that it is actually true and therefore trustworthy. You can bank on it. You you can bank your destiny on it. You can live your life on the basis of it. 1 Corinthians 2 teaches us, now we have received, not the spirit of the world, the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Paul goes on to explain the natural person, that is a person who's not been born again, the person who is still of the world, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to Him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The Spirit of God makes it true to your heart. I mean, step back a moment. How many funerals have you been to in a lifetime? So why in the world do you actually believe that you can beat it? That you can beat death? That you'll live beyond the grave? lots of people hope for that and sure, certainly lots of funerals people talk that way but that's the way everybody talks because it's hard for them to let go of a person they knew it, but but is it just fantasy is it just made up stuff or is it actually true well the spirit of god convinces you that it is that it's not foolishness that it, that it's not crazy The question this morning, then, is do you believe the testimony of the apostles? It was eyewitness testimony. Do you believe the witness, the testimony of the prophets? Because they prophesied that Jesus would do this and would be this person. Do you believe the testimony of Christ himself? You say, well, w- well, wait a minute, I don't really know what the apostles said and what the prophets said and what Christ said. Oh, yes, you do. Because we have the best preserved ancient documents in the world by far. So you can choose not to believe, but it's not for lack of evidence because you've got more evidence than any other ancient document in the world. Any, not even close. So what you're choosing to do is say, I'm considering this all fantasy and a lie. Okay, that's on the logic side. The problem is not on the logic and the intellect side. If you don't believe this, it's not an intellectual problem. Because going from historical evidence and and going just the nature of research, there's plenty to commend this. Eyewitness testimony. It's like going to a courtroom and you have all these eyewitnesses who say, well, I believe something different. Okay? If you don't believe, it's, it's not an intellectual problem. It is a spirit problem. Because the Spirit of God has to convince you. And what is it that, that the Spirit of God runs up against? What is it that, that keeps us from being willing to accept this? Well, you know that if you accept the testimony of the prophets and the apostles and of Christ himself, that you are no longer in charge of your life. That you will answer to a holy God. And you know that if you will not humble yourself to be rescued by this God, that you will be under his wrath forever in the lake of fire, that you will be put down. He will not let you raise defiance against him. And that bugs you. And you would rather pretend like he doesn't exist and like all of this is just a fraud rather than lose your little kingdom. Every atheist I've ever heard talk Eventually reveals that this is the issue. We don't want to give up control. The problem is, you're not in control. You aren't. And just because you don't believe a person exists doesn't make that person vanish from the universe. And you can't escape your coffin. This is not a winning game. You're just pretending you're in control. You're just pretending God doesn't exist. You're just pretending that the gospel isn't true. But the human heart is in such rebellion against God because we're sinners by birth as well as by choice that we just don't want, we, we don't want God to tell us what to do. The Holy Spirit has to convince us that Jesus, He loves me, He is for me, and that when I yield to Him, I don't find slavery, I find life. The Spirit has to convince you of this. The Spirit also does a work in us He gives us love, verse 16. So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And then down in verse 19, we love. Notice it says, we love. Not just God, but other people. Because He first loved us. We have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. God is love. It's this intrinsic character. And, and whoever actually believes this way abides in love and abides in God and God abides in him. We love because he first loved us. Think about that whole concept. We, we did not make the first move. He did. I was reminded this week of the song that's been around for quite a while, Who Am I? that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose the light, the way for my ever-wandering heart? Who am I that the eyes that see my sin would look on me with love and watch me rise again? Who am I that the voice that calmed the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done, not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. I am a flower quickly fading here today and gone tomorrow, a wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. Still, you hear me when I'm calling. Lord, you catch me when I'm falling. You've told me who I am. I am yours." We love because He first loved us. The Holy Spirit has convinced us that God did, in fact, make that first move. There's a tight connection between believing God sent His Son to save us because of His love for us and God's love abiding in us so that we love one another. His love was an initiating kind of love. It came from who He is, not in response to what we are. And that tells us then that the love we have for one another that comes from God is not just you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. You know, we talk about loving one another and a mutual love, a reciprocal love, but it's not just, you know, we're paying each other back. It's not just payback. If our love bears the same character as God's, we are glad to initiate love toward persons, whether or not we think they deserve it in some way. We love them in tangible ways in answer to their need, not merely to their merits. Look, there's plenty of days I'm not that lovable, and the same with you. We all need people to love us even when we're not lovable the way God has loved us. And and everybody we know needs us to love them even when they're not lovable. Church life should look that way. Our love can't just be a reward for service well done or for faithful involvement. We want to embrace and serve those who are new to us, those who are struggling, those who are on the edges, those, those who may have no expectation that we would even notice they exist especially persons like that. We need to show tangible love. Abiding in love is the hallmark of our abiding in God and God's abiding in us, and He does this through the Spirit of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul said it this way in Romans 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love for us in us then then produces love for others we love because he first loved us verse 20 of our text if anyone says i love god and hates his brother he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love god who is not seen and this commandment we have from him whoever loves god must love his brother so it is possible To only imagine that you love God, or that you love people for that matter. You know, sometimes you hear people say, oh, I'm a people person. Oh, I love people. Like, you know, like this generic thing. The test is how you treat the people you actually know, and the people with whom you interact Love is spiritual. It's a spiritual quality generated by the Holy Spirit in us, but it makes itself known in tangible ways. It's immensely practical. People sometimes think that spirituality is being otherworldly and mystical, you know, like going around humming. Actually, paganism is that way, because the gods of paganism are idols, no gods, imaginary, or even worse, demons behind them. But if you and I don't love the people we can see and hear and touch, there's no way, John says, that we actually love God, who is spirit and therefore invisible. We're lying to ourselves, and we're lying to others. Now, how did God show us love? He showed us love in tangible, practical ways. We walk on His earth. We didn't make it. He created it to be inhabited. So every single day, you enjoy God's tangible love to you as a human being, even before you're born again. We breathe His air. You take our breath away, and we die. We gaze on the beauty that He created. We eat food that came from Him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Jesus came in human flesh. He poured out physical lifeblood. He rose physically from the tomb. His disciples touched his wounded hands and sighed. He physically ate food in their presence. So when we truly love the God who loves us this way, so practical, so tangible, then we love others in the same way, the way he loved us in very practical, down-to-earth ways that meet real needs. We don't have air, we die. We don't have food, we die. We need something to walk on or we float. Who are the individuals to whom you have the most opportunity to show love? In other words, we're not going to talk about the imaginary people that you'll show love to someday, the people you can show love to now. What about mom? And more than just on Mother's Day. That's next week, by the way. Your dad. How do you show love to your dad? Your brother. Even the one that's in junior high. Your sister. Even though she tries to mother you. Your wife your husband? How do you show love to your coworker? You have more than one, likely. How about your neighbor? Many of you are students. How about your classmates? Do you show love to your classmates? What are, what are practical, tangible ways that you can do that? And what practical ways can you love them? I would encourage you to to meditate on this question and the answers to it before you start the week. It's good that we have the Lord's Day, a, a day that's a break from the normal routine. Think about how you could do this. And then as you start each day, hopefully in communion with God, think about how you can live each day intentionally, taking advantage of the opportunities God has given you to show the love of God in you toward others. Don't just dream about showing love someday to people you don't even know yet. Start where you are with the people you know and the opportunities you have. And just kind of to get us started on that, why don't don't we just take, let's take half a minute or so just, just to stop with this thought. And, and just maybe to jot down mentally or physically, who are the people you have opportunity to love? What are some practical ways that you can actually show love to them? Let's just do it right, and we're not going to wait till afterwards because afterwards we'll be too hungry. We'll be ready to eat lunch. We'll forget all about this. Let, let's do it right now. So I want to give you a, a moment to do that. I know this may feel weird, this is not what we normally do, but maybe we should do more of it. Think about it. I don't have a second hand up here, so I'm just guessing what 30 seconds feels like. All right, so how many of you came up with some names, some specific persons? And some specific things that you can do to show love. Just, like, I want you raised really high. So, okay. So, look at that. How would that change? How could that change what this next week looks like? And the impact of God working through you to touch other lives. If you are born again you have God's Spirit in you as a gift from God. You can do this, and in fact, the text says you must do this. This is His command for you. Finally, let's get to confidence in verses 17 and 18. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because He is as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Okay, those words, perfect love casts out fear, may be some of the most off quoted words from this epistle um, ever. But before we repeat those words, like some kind of quick fix mantra, let's make sure we know what John is actually saying. The context will help us understand. Remember what he said in 1 John 4, 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. We're going to make God visible by our loving one another. And when we love one another, His love is perfected in us. That is, His love shown to us through Christ achieves its goal and purpose when we live out that same kind of love toward one another. This is not talking about absolute perfection, because that doesn't happen this side of glory. This is talking about the achievement, the reaching of the goal, the purpose. By this, love is perfected in us. And he's repeating that now in our text. Love reaches its goal its maturity, its purpose, when we are loving one another as our way of life. It is this practical, loving lifestyle, which we now know is generated by the Holy Spirit in us, that gives us confidence or boldness when we think ahead of the day of judgment. If, we, if you should mark iniquities, the psalmist says, O oh Lord, who should stand? So how can we have confidence or boldness in the day of judgment? Well, we are in the world the way Jesus was in the world. We are not of the world just as Jesus was not of the world. And the reason we're not, because of the Spirit of God that's in us. John fifteen seventeen to 19, These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So this love-hate thing is going on. And this loving one another is part of belonging to Jesus. We are not going to have to suffer the judgment that God will bring on the world because we're not of the world. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And it's in that kind of concept, this this perfected love, this love that is reaching the goal of why God saved us, that he says, verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The fear here is the fear of God's punishment, both now and in the final judgment. I'm talking about every kind of fear. Look, you ought to fear jumping off a building. You ought to fear walking into a fire. You, you, You ought to fear a tornado and find shelter, okay? This is fear of God's punishment. And the love is a love that He's put in us through the Holy Spirit. Perfect love in context does not mean that we love perfectly, but that God's love has reached His intended goal by producing a loving lifestyle toward one another. That is the meaning that John has been using when he says this is perfected. Perfect love is perfected. It's reaching the goal. Whoever fears punishment from God, in particular in Judgment Day, has not been perfected in love. Well, why is that? Because if I'm not living a life characterized by mutual love among those around me, because that's what perfected love looks like, if I am living that life, Of mutual love among those around me, I have the mark of God's life in me, the Holy Spirit of God. I belong to Christ. I've been born again. I've been granted eternal life, not just length of life, but quality of life. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for me any longer. And it's clear, because the work of the Spirit of God in me is evident By my love for the brothers and sisters. I fulfilled, I'm fulfilling God's love in me is bringing fruitfulness in my life, this fruitfulness of love. This is what is taught in other places as well. John 8, I mean, Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is that? For the law of the Spirit of life, notice the Holy Spirit's role here, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, He paid the penalty, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How do you do that? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul's teaching the same thing. We no longer fear condemnation because of what Christ has done. And in giving us a Spirit, we now are able to live life in accord with the Spirit. 1 John 2, 28, Now little children abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from from Him in shame that is coming. This is not sinless perfection, but this is character of life, a character of life that God produces through the Holy Spirit. Those who abide in God and in whom God abides demonstrate that reality by their lifestyle of love. The Spirit has convinced them to rely on Jesus as God's Son sent to save them. And that proves God's love for them to their own hearts. We love because He first loved us. The Spirit has filled them with love, and they have assurance, and they have confidence because of it. They know they're safe forever. So that leaves us with the question at the end then, are you abiding in God, and is God abiding in you? Well, let your confidence be that the God who loves you and sent His Son to save you also gave you His Spirit to convince you of these truths and to empower your love. You and I don't need religion. We need God. The God who really is and has proven who He is with real action in real life history, demonstrating His love to us while we were yet sinners and that Christ died for us. What a gift God has given us. He has given us Himself. Through the gift of His Spirit, we find assurance, we find faith, We find love, and we find confidence, even even knowing we will stand before a holy God. It's an amazing thing. What a gift. Let's bow our heads. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, but I would ask you to try to be as honest as you can before the Lord about where you are and what God has done. Many of you are trusting in Jesus. And so this is more about you letting the Spirit of God that's in you have full reign of your life. Will you let Him do that? Will you go with the, the flow that He's given to you? Others of you, you haven't trusted in Jesus and your life is not marked by love. And your problem is not just that you need to try harder. You need Jesus. You need the Spirit of God. You need God. You need to humble yourself and trust Him and let Him change you the way only God can. I want to give you a moment to do that, and then I'll close in prayer. Dear God, your plan of salvation, the strategy that you use to rescue people who are rebels against you and make them citizens of your kingdom and children of your family is really amazing grace. And Lord, we we revel in it. We rejoice in it. Forgive us for the times we forget who we are and what you've given us to live for your glory and for the good of others. And Lord, I pray that you would make us stronger and stronger in living in love and displaying who you are, that the Jesus who loves us and is for us is not just wishful thinking. It's evident because of we had that same spirit toward people. We pray this for your glory. and God, I pray for those individuals still still outside of Christ, either resisting or confused. God, I pray that you would break every barrier down and draw them to yourself, that they might abide in you, in you and them. To the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray.